probably exhausted. Um, and so it's good that we're coming into Mark 12 this morning <laughs> to, uh, to encourage our hearts and our souls. So, um, yeah, grateful you're here. If you're a visitor, you should have gotten a card uh, as you came in. Um, there's a few ways that you can engage with us on the back of that card. On the front of the card, it's just kind of a, an expectation and an, an outline of what our services typically look like. And so you can follow uh, where we are um, and know what is coming. And we would encourage you, um, as we're gathered together this morning, to uh, be interacting with the back portion of your card. There's lots of opportunities to connect, um, to request information. I know that myself or any of the volunteers here at Christ the King would love to uh, to share with you uh, potential ways to uh, become plugged in and more involved. Uh, there's a lot of new things that are going on here at Christ the King, and so uh, don't be afraid to indicate on there your desire for information in a particular area, and we will follow up. At the very bottom of your card, uh, is a place where you can uh, be engaging uh, with what we see in this morning's passage from Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. We say this, right, that um, as uh, a people, right, God demands a response from us in light of the proclamation of his word. And so uh, if you came in here this morning with a particular posture, right, or with some things going on in your life, what we want to understand as we approach this morning's passage is that God's word is alive, right? And that it, it transforms uh, hearts, right? And, and minds and affections and perceptions. And so uh, be engaging uh, with the back of your card as we work through Mark chapter 12, understanding this morning that God desires that his people would leave this place transformed. Right? That, that we ought to always, in light of the preaching of God's word or just interaction with it, become uh, more like Christ. This is what God does in his people by way of his spirit, right? And even in those who are far from God, right, through the proclamation of the word, he, he breaks hearts, right? Cutting them to the quick, as we see in Acts chapter 2, and, and reconciling sinners unto himself. And so um, this morning, right, we desire to leave here transformed in light of what we see in Mark chapter 12. As we look to a God-informed perspective on authority, that's what we're going to be talking about this morning, and really what we're going to be talking about next week, really if you think about the way that we function week to week, it's what we talk about every week, right? Um, a God-informed perspective on authority, right? Ultimately, speaking of the authority of God and how God's authority informs the way that we submit ourselves to earthly authority and institutions and governing bodies. That's what we're going to see this morning. Um, and then we're going to close our time with this just this massive look at um, the way uh, that God desires us as uh, as uh, those created in his image uh, to respond to him. And so we spent a lot of time in the beginning talking about response where it's going to be really, really applicable this morning as we look to the end of our of our passage. And so um, what we've been doing the past couple of weeks, I want you to begin meeting and engaging with other people that are a part of this fellowship, right? We have time in the very beginning where we spend time dialoguing and catching up and we love that, right? As, as God's people um, connect in community around him together. And 
so uh, one way that we're going to begin practicing this more moving forward is by having uh, someone that is a part of our fellowship to read our passage um, each week. And so this morning, Walt Green is going to come and he's going to read uh, our passage. Many of you guys recognize Walt. You know Walt. Uh, he's up here leading um, every week. Walt, you can use that mic over there, man. That might help. Um, you, you recognize Walt. You know him. He leads us every week in song. And so grateful for all that Walt does um, and, uh, and, and his being here to, to read our passage this morning. So why don't you read for us, Walt? Yeah, if you guys are following me, I'm going to read Mark 12, 13 through 17. This is the word of the Lord. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at it. Amen. Hey, let's pray together. Father, thanks for your word uh, and for your people gathering together this morning under the authority of, uh, of, your, uh, of your scriptures. And so we do pray this morning that as we approach them, that we might do so in, in a humble fashion, um, that we might uh, be willing this morning to submit ourselves um, to your word and all that that means for our lives and how we are to uh, both engage it in our time together and respond to it in light of what we see. We love you. And Father, we are grateful uh, for Christ, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. So we're going to look this morning to Mark chapter 12 and seek to, uh, seek to begin wrapping our minds around um, a perspective on authority that is informed by God, right? God informs our perspective on, uh, on authority, and we begin by, by acknowledging a few very simple truths for God's people, okay? We can say this, that as a people... Right, living in submission to a king who plucks us out of our sin and clothes us in his righteousness, we now walk in this life as pilgrims. Right? We we live a sojourn, a sojourn type of life. Essentially, we are strangers in a land that we are very familiar with. And yet And yet we are a people that never feel totally at home because we're not, right? We're we're not at home. We, We live our lives as a people who have been redeemed by Christ, right? And we live our lives as a people who have been redeemed for Christ. And yet we continue to reside in a world that is marked by sin, Right? There, there is no part of creation or the human experience, the human existence that exists outside of the fall's effects. Right? We see it everywhere and we feel it everywhere. Now because this is true, right, as God's people, we find ourselves in a state of constant tension. 
right? Because we are, as God's people, living as pilgrims redeemed by Christ in this world that we are familiar with, and yet at the same time don't feel at home in, we live in an ever-present state of tension. And that tension is this, right? Here's the tension that we as God's people exist in, that we dwell in, that we experience every day. A question, really, and the question is this. How do we, as God's people... Created in God's image, redeemed by God's grace, live in a broken world. How how do we, as God's people, created in God's image, that's going to prove to be very important as we engage with what we see in Mark chapter 12 this morning, redeemed by God's grace, live in a broken world, relating with other broken people and oftentimes with broken systems. Right with, with broken institutions. What we see is that this question forms the backdrop of what we see in Mark chapter 12. Are you guys with me so far? And so let's begin by considering some contextual information that's really going to help us in light of what we've seen over the past few weeks as we approach our time together this morning. We begin by considering what we know. Right? What we know about the hope of the people in the context of Mark chapter 12 for, a, for the political institutions of the day. Now, when we begin considering this, we can say this, that, that the hope of the people in Mark chapter 12 is not altogether different from our own hope. As we consider the context in which we're reading this passage this morning, there is a lot of crossover into our modern-day context as well. Two weeks ago, we discussed this framework right, that had been interrupted by Christ in light of what the chief priests believed about the coming of the Messiah. We see the king that they are waiting for was one who would, in their minds, exercise his power in a militaristic way, displaying his authority through his judgment of the earthly institutions. Right, That from a Jewish perspective, practiced oppressive tactics on God's covenant people. This was the expectation of the religious leaders. Right, When is this king going to come and exercise right, his power in a mighty way in which we see the enemies of God's people and those oppressors judged finally and forever? Only we see that their framework, their expectation runs in in stark contrast with certain messianic Old Testament passages that portray the Christ as not this militaristic leader that would bring about the initiation of his kingdom by force, but instead we see this picture painted of a suffering servant. Right? Like we see in Isaiah chapter 53, who would bring about this, this, this truer and better kingdom, the kingdom that our hearts long for and desire through his suffering. And so because of this contrast in expectation and reality, right, we see, we see a repeated rejection of the authority of Jesus. Right, we, we see those in the most prominent positions of power seeking again and again to, to trap and conspire against Jesus, understanding the threat that he poses to their work among the people. Now, last week, we saw Jesus paint this really vivid picture, right? 
Like this, this really big and, and beautiful picture in which he confronts his people with their sin and the coming judgment. Right, we, we see that this stone that was once rejected by his own as a part of right, God's plan, the Father's plan to rescue a people from their sin at the cross, verse 11 of Mark chapter 12, would rule eternally as the chief cornerstone. Right, this event that displays most clearly both humanity's evil and the Father's love would stand as an example of God's ability to work all things together for the good of his people. And we were left last week feeling both joyous at the Father's persistence while at the same time heartbroken for those who refuse to submit to the authority of Christ. Now, today... We continue in this final week of the life of Jesus leading up to the cross with yet another interaction between Christ and his detractors. This time, the Pharisees and the Herodians. And so there's this idea that we want to begin wrapping our minds around. You can see it up here on the screen. It'll stay there for the remainder. But it is this. Based on what we see in Mark chapter 12, we see that God desires from his people... A gospel-centered obedience that reflects confidence in his divine plan and purpose. Let's say that one more time. Because this is what we're working towards. We've got two observations that we're going to make that are going to inform the way that we understand this this bigger main idea. God desires from his people a gospel-centered obedience. And we might even add to that and say this, that God desires from his people a gospel-informed obedience. Right, we're, we're talking an obedience that exists outside of the realm of legalism. I remember the way Tim Keller described it as this, that we see our sin against God not as right, a breaking of his rules, but instead a breaking of his heart. And that is the way that we understand the distinction between a God-glorifying, gospel-inspired obedience and legalism. We see this morning that God desires for his people a gospel-centered obedience that reflects confidence in his divine plan and purpose. Two observations that we're going to make uh, from this passage. Number one, we see Christ exposing the evil in the heart of those engaging him. Here's the deal. Christ does not pass up an opportunity to confront an individual with their own depravity, okay? Okay. Christ does not pass up the opportunity to confront those who are at a great distance from him with the hardness of their hearts. Now, we're going to see this morning that this works to our benefit as we are confronted with our own hardness of heart and God's great grace that we've already sang about this morning. The second thing that we notice is this, that Christ establishes God's ownership of all things and shapes how his people submit to authority. Now, when we talk about authority in this context, what we see in Mark chapter 12, what we're going to find is that Jesus speaks towards and informs the way that God's people, a pilgrim people living in a broken world, marred by sin, are to engage with and submit to the earthly authorities that he has placed in a position of power over them, right? And it's all going to center around this issue of 
of taxes, right? That's what we're going to see Jesus talking about. And so let's begin uh, where Jesus does, right? In verse 13, by exposing the evil in the heart of those that are engaging him. Look with me at verse 13. Walt already read it. We'll revisit Verse 13, and they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Now, this is going to serve to be a a big point of what we're going to talk about over the next few minutes. And so store that away. Verse 14, and they came and said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. Indeed, only they're not saying this in the most flattering of ways. And that's informed by the question that they asked just prior. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. As a result, right, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? How do we engage with the system, right? How do we engage with these, uh, these governing authorities that have been placed in a position above us? We're introduced to a most unusual partnership in verse 13 between the Herodians and the Pharisees. Now, I don't expect everyone in here to understand the uniqueness of that partnership, although if you do, bravo, right? Um, because it is super interesting and really does inform to a greater degree the evil that's existing in the hearts of those that are engaging with Jesus. In the Herodians, we see a people, we see essentially a political party who desires to see a Herod on the throne in Judea. Now, just a few weeks ago, we talked about how uh, God's people, the leaders, those that have been placed in positions of authority among the Jewish people, failed to respond righteously, right, to the murder of John the Baptist that came at the hands of Herod. This morning, we see the Herodians, this political party, again, find their way to the forefront, this time in partnership with the Pharisees. Now, what's unique about this partnership between the Herodians and the Pharisees? Well, if the Herodians desire to see a Herod on the throne, then there must be some distinction between who the Pharisees decide or, or, or desire to see occupy the throne. And that is the difference. That's the contrast. In the Pharisees, we see a group who desires to see a descendant of David on the throne. And so we have two groups, each group desiring a different king, but in agreement that a King Jesus would clearly be a step in the wrong direction for said political party. And so we see for the second time in recent weeks, a combined effort in verse 13 to trap Jesus Beginning with, as we've already seen, flattery before moving on to the question at hand. And the question is this, from this very strange partnership that has emerged in verse 13. The question is this, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? A A really clear question Right? Requiring simply a yes or no response. Only we see through the response of Jesus that this very simple question is made much more complex given the history. Right? The Jews viewed Rome as a pagan culture. 
And so if this is true and Rome is this governing authority that is exercising their power over the Jewish people, God's covenant people, then they would understand Rome's pagan culture and their instruction to pay this tax as an offense. Not only would it be an offense, but it would be viewed by God's people as oppressive. And so if Jesus responds to this very simple question by simply saying, yes, pay your tax, what will the result, what will the result be? Well, it could be seen by God's people as a show of support for this worldly, oppressive regime. On the other hand, Jesus could respond by simply saying no. Now, how would that particular answer be received? Well, it would essentially amount to a call for God's people to revolt against these powers and authorities that are exercising their uh, dominion, right, in a way over the people. They would withhold their tax from Rome, which would naturally create a bit of hard feelings from the Roman institution governing and God's chosen people. And so Jesus is in danger based on how he responds to the question at hand of either losing his popularity among the people, pay the tax, right? Or losing his life, don't pay the tax, Angering the Jews or angering the Romans? And so this very simple question becomes much more complex as we begin to understand, as we begin to understand what is at stake. And so how is Jesus going to answer them? Well, as we've said already, he begins by exposing their hearts. Verse 15, knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Uh, essentially, Jesus says, says this. Let's be really clear about what's going on here, okay? Whereas you begin with empty flattery, you have now ventured into the realm of evil. Now, we know this based on the way that Mark records what we see here in his gospel. That, that Jesus is understanding when he talks about the work that is being accomplished by these uh, various institutions present engaging him in this dialogue, he is pointing not only towards the hardness of, of their heart, but the evil that exists and resides within their heart. Here's how we see that. The same word that Mark uses here for test in verse 15 is used earlier on in Mark's gospel to describe another encounter and yet another dialogue. Now, he uses it here in the context of the dialogue between the Herodians and the Pharisees and Jesus discussing their question and how it's actually a test. Now, we see this previously in Mark's gospel in Mark chapter 1, verse 13. And you say, well, what in the world's going on in Mark chapter 1, verse 13? We see Jesus beginning his public ministry by being driven out by the Spirit into the wilderness, at which point we see Satan test Jesus 
The same way that we see the Pharisees and the Herodians testing him here in Mark chapter 12. You see, their question does not reflect a desire for truth. And so we have to be careful the way that we confront this passage. Hey, seems like a a harmless enough, simple enough question that those present are asking Jesus. Only it's not. It's not a desire for truth, but in fact, it's an attempt to derail the mission of Jesus. Right, to, to force his hand and in turn, turn one of these institutions against him. Only we see, just as Satan fails in Mark 1, so too would the Pharisees and the Herodians fail in Mark 12. In part 1 of what we see in Mark 12, verses 13 through 17, we see this. What is this about? We see the exposing of the evil that exists in the hearts of those that are engaging Jesus. Right? But, but big picture, what do we begin to see? We begin to see this. And this is a source of great confidence for God's people. And so lean in here. Right? Like lean in and, and hear this. We need to know as a pilgrim people living in this world, we need to know what we see affirmed through Christ's victory in this scene over those that are asking this question. We see that nothing, nothing, and no one will sway Christ's commitment to his work. Right, we see that, that nothing and no one will sway or derail Christ's commitment to his mission. Right? He, he will not be overcome, and his plan will not be thwarted. It will not be undone. Christ has a, a divine appointment before him. And we're just a few days out from it at this point, and it is the cross. Now, Christ will submit himself to the earthly authorities right, by way of his crucifixion, but he's not going to do it here in Mark chapter 12. Right? It's not time yet. It's not time for that to take place. And so we see God's commitment to, through Christ, his mission, his timing, his providential plan, and his purpose. Not only do we see Jesus exposing the evil within the hearts of those confronting him, but we see observation number two. Right, that, that Christ establishes God's ownership of all things and shapes how his people submit to authority, both earthly authority as well as heavenly authority. You see, there appears to be this major contrast presented in verses 15 through 17. Right, a contrast between what belongs to Caesar and what belongs to God. Only Jesus, through his addressing of this question, all but erases the contrast that had been constructed. Look with me at the second half of verse 15 through verse 17. Bring, with, bring me a denarius and let me look at it, Jesus says in verse 15. Verse 16, they respond, they brought him one, and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Because on this coin, right, that it was uh, essentially, right, a, a day's wage for God's people, there is a, a, an inscription, right? There's a, there's a picture similar to our own currency, right? Um, and on the coin is the likeness of Caesar, 
So they answer correctly. To which Jesus says in verse 17, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And so this is Christ's answer to their question. And we see in his answer, through his answer, there are two issues. First, the rendering to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And secondly, rendering to God the things that are God's. And there is a degree in which these two things inform one another. Are you guys with me so far? So let's begin with the secondary issue, because I think that actually the first part is actually the secondary issue. The secondary issue here is the rendering to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But it is here, right? It is an issue that is addressed for God's people, and so we're going to approach it that way this morning. Now, the scriptures make it clear that the authority that Caesar possesses, which is a very real authority— is a result of God's divine appointment. Right? We see Christ informing here the way that we understand political institutions and structures that are placed over a people. We see that these authorities exist because God has allowed them to exist and that those who possess a degree of power possess it because God has allowed them to possess said degree of power. Paul unpacks this idea a little bit further in Romans chapter 13. And so if you want to turn to Romans 13, we're going to read the first seven verses. If you want to just listen, lean in, and let's seek to understand to a greater degree how Paul informs our understanding of what Jesus has to say here about earthly institutions, specifically governmental institutions. Here's what he says, Paul writing in Romans chapter 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And so even now, when we talk about the blending that takes place between the rendering to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's, we see that informed by what we read here in Romans chapter 13. There's a blending that takes place. Therefore, Whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. Now, there are uh, expectations, right? And also uh, instances in which there is a, um, a, a lack of submission that's to be demonstrated by God's people, which we'll talk about in just a few moments. Paul continues writing, And those who resist will incur judgment, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but bad. Now, this is, of course, ideal governmental institutions. We know that there are indeed oppressive regimes, right, that don't reflect these same truths that we see encouraged from Paul in Romans chapter 13. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. Verse 4, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. Right? Whoa. If you do wrong, be afraid of these institutions that have been placed over you. Why? Because he does not bear the sword in vain. 
For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath. And so there is this this instance, right, this situation in which standing in opposition of authoritative figures makes us the object of God's wrath. But also, he says, for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. Very similar to what we see Jesus talking about in Mark, in Mark 12. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Now here's the irony of what we see taking place here, that Paul pins these words while existing under one of the most evil and oppressive of Roman rulers. And so this isn't, hey, like things are going really well, therefore submit yourself to the earthly authorities and institutions. Instead, it is, this is the way that God desires us to engage with them. Here's the point of this portion of Jesus' answer. What's all this about? What's the point? What are we getting at? What are we driving to? When God's people realize that Caesar's rights and power ultimately belong to God, which is what we see emphasized by Paul in Romans chapter 13, then they will begin to possess the frame of mind and heart desired by God for service. We have to begin by understanding that our submission to, in this case, Caesar, glorifies God as we participate in our Christian duty. It's a form of glory offered to God as we submit ourselves to these ruling authorities and institutions. While at the same time, we have to acknowledge and recognize that there are limitations on what can be rendered to our government leaders. One well-known pastor had this to say as it pertains to this issue. He says, what is Caesar's is determined by the fact that everything is God's first. And only become Caesar's by God's permission and design. Only God decides what is rightful, thus limiting what is to be rendered to Caesar. What we see here is that this is not all-encompassing. This is not no questions asked, head in the sand, submission to earthly institutions. And we see beautiful... And, and, and wonderful examples of this type of, let's just call it rebellion, found in Scripture. A great example is in the book of Exodus. Where early on in the book of Exodus, the Hebrew midwives are instructed by Pharaoh to kill any Hebrew males born. Well, you've got this governing figure who has expressed desire over those who are under his his authority. And so how would they respond? Well, we know that this is an instruction that God's people cannot submit themselves to. Why? Well, because in this case, that which God loves and desires is being oppressed. And so our sojourn law, in this case, what we see in the book of Exodus, supersedes that of the law of the land, right? There are times and issues that demand from God's people 
not just a voice of opposition, but a strong voice of opposition. We're right here in the middle of of Sanctity of Life Month, right? We celebrated last week the sanctity of human life, and we expressed our willingness and, and our excitement to be able to step into this controversy that has been constructed within our culture and to speak for the right of life, Right When we begin to talk about issues of abortion and euthanasia, no matter what those in governing positions have to say about these issues, we as God's people submit ourselves to our great high king. And what he has to say about these issues, when it comes to deliberate and cruel mistreatment of people, these are clear and present issues that God's people must speak out boldly and publicly against. And here is the unfortunate thing. Unfortunately, there are instances in the past in which God's people have failed in this area. You consider the civil rights movement, right? And and while there were churches present who spoke out, right, as it pertains to this issue that clearly works in opposition of what we see God desiring from his people in his word, there were far too many that stood by and watched this injustice take place. And there are instances in our very own lives in which this might be true, in which we acknowledge our sin, right? And we seek to respond with boldness in the future because at the end of the day, the reality is that we serve the owner of this world and not necessarily the leaders of this world, This is a point from Mark chapter 12, and it's an important one, right? It informs the way that we as God's people relate with and submit ourselves to the institutions that exist in our land and in our world. But the primary point of this portion of their exchange is the call to render to God that which is God. And so the question arises, doesn't it? It's not difficult. It's not challenging. You're probably asking yourself the very question that we need to acknowledge right now. And that question is this. If that's true, then what is God's, right? If I'm to render to God what is God's, then what is God's? Well, as we've seen, there's a sense in which everything is God's, right? That it's, that it's all his. And thus, in this same sense, we are, right? We are are gods. And and that is the preeminent point of the statement that Jesus is making here. Right? Even the question itself posed to Jesus reflects a massive disconnect because we see from God's people this concern with what is to be surrendered to Caesar as God's people. But as they ask the question, they have totally failed to surrender themselves to God. You see, while the denarius may in fact bear the likeness of Caesar, in the same sense, we, as God's people, created in the Imago Dei, bear the likeness of God. And thus, we 
owe ourselves to him. That's what Jesus is saying here. You're so concerned about what's to be rendered to Caesar that you are failing to render yourself to God. Your worship is jacked and misguided. Right? And your eyes are closed and shut off. Your hearts are hard to that which is standing right before you. And it is at this point that we see a transition encouraged. Right? A transition out of what had become an empty ritual from God's people paying taxes to this call to present themselves, all of themselves, to God. You see, this is the desire of Christ. When we start talking about what does Christ desire and how we do we begin responding to what we see in Mark chapter 12 this morning, God desires, Christ desires that sinners would surrender their lives to him. Right? By way of repentance and faith and in turn confess that we now belong to a high king. Right? A high priest who exercises power and dominion over all things. Who exists and has existed outside of time and space. And now occupies a throne at the right hand of the father. Right? There's this desire that we would begin here and then that from that we would surrender to Christ our entire selves, everything that we are. So let's consider different aspects of our, of our lives that Christ calls us to surrender to God, to render to him because he owns them by way of owning us, by way of purchasing us, by way of the cross. He owns our affections, and therefore we render to God our affections. Right? And, we, and we ask him to transform our affections in ways and in areas that they are in need of being transformed. Our passions, we surrender our passions to our king. We don't succumb to the passions of this world and the passions of our flesh because... If you've been going through the New City Catechism with us, who's been going through? Raise your hand. Awesome. A few weeks ago, we looked at this question, right, and this answer that reflected this reality that we are not our own, that we are not our own. And that's come up a handful of times over the course of our time together over the past few weeks. Haley and I had a wonderful discussion about how these truths inform the way that we live our lives. I'll just be, I'll just be open and honest and transparent as we put together these DNA groups. Haley working diligently, really hard on that, and, and coming alongside and saying, listen, there are people that are a part of this that I don't know, and I know that there are relationships that exist. How do we begin to pair these people in these various groups when they might be paired with somebody that they don't know, or they might be paired with somebody that they don't have a lot in common with? To which we step back and we go, okay, how does God's word inform the way that we answer this question? Well, as Haley pointed out, as Keller pointed out, as God points out, like we are not our own, right? We're not our own. We don't belong to ourselves. It's not ultimately about what we want, but it's about what God wants and what God desires. And we can be clear based on what we see here in Mark 12, that God desires his people. He desires their affections. He desires their passions. He desires their time and their talents and their treasures, right? Just to borrow from a familiar, a familiar, uh, a familiar term for many of us. 
right? Our, our expectations, he demands those, right? And we surrender those to him. Our doubts, our concerns, our questions, these are God's and thus we render to them, to him. Our lives, our very lives belong to God. Why? Why do they belong to God? Well, because he has bought us. He has has bought us. In this passage and, and in this world, we see a corrupt king and we see a corrupt system. And so we look to God and we see that he has purchased us by way of the incorruptible king's sacrifice upon the cross for our forgiveness. Let me say that one way. As we look to Mark chapter 12, we see a broken system. As we look to 2018, we see a broken system. And we're left desiring justice and that which is right and that which is good and that which is pure. And what we find is that God demonstrates and displays and possesses this in himself, right? The divine king, the perfect ruler lays down his life for the sake of the sheep to redeem them, to reconcile them, to purchase them back for himself. And so, all that we are left desiring through the earthly institutions of this world that so oftentimes let us down, we see possessed and displayed in Christ. God demands all of us, right? God demands all of us, and we have declined, right? We've declined. In Christ, we see one who did not. We see the Son being asked to give it all by the Father. And whereas we, right, in our sin and in our rebellion have declined, we see Christ, in fact, submit himself in an act of amazing grace. Right, displaying obedience in our place, surrendering to the Father. The gospel informs the way that we understand and apply everything that we see in Mark chapter 12. We begin to understand this, the way that we participate in the entirety of Jesus' response to this question and how it is informed by what Christ accomplishes. The point seems to be when you realize that all of life, including all of Caesar's rights and power and possessions belong to God, then you will be in a proper frame of mind to render to Caesar that which is Caesar's and to God that which is God's. That is not original, but that is very good. We have to understand the primary point of this portion of Mark chapter 12 in order to respond with any type of obedience at all. Right? Whether we're talking submission to the governing authorities or submitting ultimately to God, it has to begin there in order to respond rightly to what we see asked through the entirety of it all. God's possession of all things informs The way in which we give to Caesar. God's ownership 
over all things informs the way that we give to Caesar. Caesar, our postures are transformed, right? Our, our confidence in God to work and redeem through these simple acts are transformed, Right? As a result of understanding that God possesses all things, we see that a joyful giver is indeed produced, even when we render to Caesar. Verse 17 records the response of the people and produces something similar in you and I. Mark writes this, in light of what Jesus has had to say to their question that exposes the evil and the idolatry of their heart, in light of establishing God's ownership over all things and how this shapes the way that God's people submit to Authority. We see in verse 17 that those listening in respond by marveling at him. They marvel at him. They marvel at Jesus. And so we say again that God desires from his people, based on what we see in Mark chapter 12, a gospel-centered obedience. A gospel-centered obedience that reflects confidence in his divine plan and purpose. And what we see through this passage is the means by which he produces this in us. By way of Christ's confidence in the work of the Father in his divine plan and purpose. Working by way of the hands of sinful men to rescue the world from death. And so we ask then, how do we respond to what we see here in Mark chapter 12? How do we respond to what we see here in Mark chapter 12? A few questions that we can consider. Actually, one question. It always has more than one part, though, so, uh, so be patient. This realization that God desires that his people give to him what he owns... By transforming both their hearts and their minds. God desires that his people give to him what he owns. By transforming both their hearts and their minds. And so one question that we have to ask ourselves is how has God done this in us today? Right? How is God producing and working this, manifesting this in the lives of his people? All to the glory of his name. God desires that his people would give to him. Render to God the things that are God's. Giving him what he owns. And in doing so, transforming both our hearts and our minds. And so again, we consider, man, how has God done this? How does God do this? How is he accomplishing this? By way of his spirit in our hearts and in our lives today. The way that we render to those authorities that, that exercise power over us and the way that we render and what we render to God is informed by what we see in Mark chapter 12. And so Walt's going to come um, and, uh, and Jacqueline, and they're going to lead us in a song in just a moment. But, but we're going to go to the Lord's table and we're going to consider this question this morning. We're going to consider this question as we take the Lord's Supper and we uh, consider, right, as we do so, what Christ has accomplished for us Upon the cross, rescuing us, redeem us, reconciling us, and then, by way of all that we see in Mark chapter twelve, transforming our hearts. Let's pray. Together.